Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to Building the Future. I am Errol Yabake, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. I'm standing in for Dan Rundy today. Today I'm joined by my friend and colleague Sam Brannon. Sam is a Senior Fellow with the CSIS International Security Project and leads the Risk and Foresight Group at CSIS. This past summer, Sam and I started thinking about a, a growing threat to global stability and prosperity. We and several others around the community have called it digital authoritarianism. We published a policy brief on this and held a webinar later last fall, a virtual webinar with CSIS's Suzanne Spaulding, Dan Twining of IRI, and and Danny Russell, all of whom we will hear from throughout the podcast. The research we will be discussing today on this podcast was made possible by Facebook. Sam, thanks for your partnership on this work, and thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Errol. Really enjoyed the, doing the project with you. And I think as you and I have talked about, seems almost more relevant by the day. Of course, we have a lot of current events early here in 2021, but I think we'll, we'll spend our time trying to focus on, on just what we found in a, in a broad sense. It strikes me how almost prescient this, this research was. I mean, this research was published right around the election last fall and and this digital authoritarianism, the tools and the tactics that we're going to be talking about really have have been in the news. They haven't necessarily been called digital authoritarianism, but these tools and tactics have very much been in the news. So we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, Sam. So could you tell our listeners first, what do we mean when we say digital authoritarianism? You know, actually, that question was what prompted our research and the project itself was trying to unpack that understand what it meant, and then understand what we could do about it. So digital authoritarianism is both the use of the internet and related digital technologies by leaders with authoritarian tendencies to decrease trust in public institutions, to increase social and political control, and to undermine civil liberties. And and notice that I said leaders with authoritarian tendencies. That's really important because these are leaders who are sometimes in authoritarian systems who are using these tools within those authoritarian systems to preserve that authoritarian model. Think about Xi Jinping inside of China, but it can also be leaders who are in authoritarian systems who are using these tools external to their countries, trying to use them in effect against the citizens of other countries, sometimes their own citizens in those other countries. And they're doing that to, in some cases, impact uh, democratic political system. So think about Russia's use of disinformation tools inside the United States and Europe from the 2016 U.S. presidential election forward, or it can be authoritarian-minded leaders who are operating within democratic countries, and they're using these tools to their own ends. And we've seen this in major democracies from India to the United Kingdom, from France to the United States. Let me also say this isn't just about elections. It's about the use of these tools to limit or violate human rights and civil liberties. It's curtailing exactly those things. It's curtailing people's ability to move freely, to exercise free speech, to practice freedom of religion, to have personal privacy. 
And it can also, as we've seen in the United States with the attacks on January 6th on the U.S. Capitol, it's a pathway to violence. Disinformation campaigns can spark civil unrest, violent conflicts, lead to election interference and threaten the core institutions of democracy. So these tools are a attack on democracy. They're an expansion of the space in which authoritarianism can exercise its influence and control, and they can erode even democracies that are the strongest in the world. So this really goes into this overall sort of authoritarianism versus democracy struggle that we see globally. I'm glad you brought up January 6th because we talk about digital authoritarianism, but I think you saw some very real world consequences to the online version of this authoritarianism that that has been budding here in the United States. But as you mentioned, it's not just a President Trump in the United States. It's not just China and Russia. I mean, this is leaders with authoritarian tendencies, which I, I love that term, is something that exists the world over. Is that right? That's absolutely right. This is a global mega trend. There's no question who the biggest abusers of these tools are. It is China. It is Russia. You know, it's Iran. It's North Korea. But they're not the only ones who have the technology. In fact, it's this is globally available technology. Uh, and they're not the only ones who are, quote, innovators in how it's used, right? They're not the only people who export it, control it, but they're also not the only people who figure out nasty tricks with it. And so the bad guys are learning from each other. They're seeing what works, they're copying it. And there's even a gray market. There's a commercial space where, in some cases, former intelligence officials in, in democracies or you know, sort of transitional democracies sell this stuff. There's a for-profit branch of hired guns who do the work for others. And all of this could potentially undo decades of, of post-World War II progress, politically, multilaterally. I mean, we're a much more globalized, intertwined world, and I think that's led to a lot of progress, but it's also meant that phenomenon like digital authoritarianism can have some serious impacts on, on fragility. So, you know, when you think about digital authoritarianism and, and fragility, what, what does that look like to you? I think one of the big debates here is about the openness of the internet, keeping the internet open and, and what that potentially could mean. In recent years, it might seem like that's actually a disadvantage in many ways. It allows others to sort of come into your system and affect your politics, but we could turn the tide there. I mean, it's also access to information and really at the heart of what digital authoritarians want to do, they want to control the flow of information. They want to restrict it where they restrict it, and they want to manipulate it where they want to manipulate it. And so, you know, there's this real problem here about how you create rules around what is an appropriate open internet that actually promotes these values of democracy and doesn't enable authoritarianism. So what you're seeing is that those who are promoting digital authoritarianism are also sort of selectively seeking to fragment or break up the internet so that it serves only their interests. They want to control cyberspace. Not They don't want it to be a global commons. They want it to be a sovereign domain. But then they also want to expand their own sovereignty at the expense of, of others' sovereignty. So they want on-off switches for certain things. They want ability to control what comes in and goes out. And they want to expand their surveillance at the state level as much as they can. That's right. Here's what Daniel Twining had to say about this at our event in October. There's a top-down effort by uh, great power authoritarians in China and Russia to 
project digital illiberalism uh, well beyond their shores through a variety of instruments that I know we'll talk more about, you know, the digital Belt and Road from China, Russia's extraordinary campaign of disinformation. It's a big concept to, to break down. Let me ask you something, because this was really where you spent a lot of time in the report, which is that we adopted that framework of sort of four pillars of, of threats, right? We did. These sort of pillars or major challenges are manifesting in, in different ways. And so first, what we thought about is digital authoritarianism is expanding within existing authoritarian-led states, China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, tools like artificial intelligence, facial recognition. They've all increased the ability of authoritarian regimes to surveil and, and control individual citizens. Think Uyghurs in Xinjiang province and countless other examples of, of countries, authoritarian-led countries, cracking down using these tools. Secondly, we, we have authoritarian regimes that are just, just emboldened to expand the reach of their digital tools abroad and, and to bring citizens of other countries under their own surveillance. So that's, that's right. I mean, we, we talked about all of those things. And, th and then we also talked about how these are manifesting inside of democracies. So not just what's happening in authoritarian states, but what's happening in democracies. Absolutely. And you alluded to some of this before. I mean, I, I still consider the United States a, a democracy, and I'd love for it to be considered a, a leading light in, in democracy worldwide. Again, January 6th, obviously, was a really dark day for, for American democracy. But these challenges are, are growing in democracies themselves, which is the third challenge that we identified. And this is happening because digital authoritarians are exporting their tools to countries, democratic countries, non-democratic countries. They're engaged in the exportation of these tools, not only to strengthen ties with those countries, but also for commercial benefit. You've got Chinese firms that are exporting surveillance technology Sure, they're gaining access to the surveillance data, but they're also making money in the process. Likewise, tools of control are, are being commercially exported from democratic countries to partly free or even authoritarian countries, which is you know, also problematic. And lastly, or fourth, the tools, techniques, and strategies of digital authoritarianism are being adopted within democratic countries by political parties, interest groups, super PACs here in the United States private companies at the expense of public trust, personal privacy, and other civil liberties. Let's face it, never before in history have autocrats had the type of technological tools at their disposal that they have now to use for control. On top of that, like this is a moment when we have a very powerful moral and political argument that we need to make. But the biggest handicap we face is American credibility. That was Danny Russell back in October, and I should have mentioned that Danny Russell is with the Asia Society Policy Institute. So, Sam, we didn't just think about challenges. You know, sometimes in think tanks, we, we get overly focused on the meta strategic challenges. We also wanted to think about what some of the tools were. And in our policy brief that we produced, there's a really nice box on these tools. Can you tell our listeners a, a little bit about how those challenges manifest into these tools that are being used by digital authoritarians? Well, the tools of digital authoritarianism are ever evolving. That's what we found. I mean, they're, they're really in motion. You mentioned artificial intelligence before. We've heard of even the fusion of biotechnology, the ability to sort of fuse 
you know, DNA level understanding of, of who's who and what they're doing with, with sort of their social media actions with a range of things. This is what we're seeing particularly in, in Xinjiang and in, in China, as you mentioned. We know that these are a means to an end. They're deployed differently depending on the challenge, the, the country's view that they're taking on, the nature of the threat that's posed to the regime and the desired goal that the regime seeks to achieve. So it's a, it's a broad array of tools being used in lots of different ways. Talk to me a little bit more about that. What, what do you mean by that? So, for instance, digital authoritarians, I would say, are, are uniquely focused over the past few years on this global leaderless protest movement that we've seen around the world and the ability. F- Which you've done a ton of work on. Uh, as a quick plug for your other research, Sam, you know, Sam is one of the leading thinkers about global protest movements. Uh, <laughs> We definitely have, have looked at, you know, what has enabled the rise of global protest movements. And the number one thing is information technology, the, the ability to organize these leaderless movements at huge scale with relative anonymity. And obviously, that's very threatening to authoritarian regimes. So they don't want encryption. They want to be able to figure out who the key nodes are within these networks. I mean, this is even related to the changes in Hong Kong's law over the summer was China's desire to sort of deal with protesters and and no doubt use information technology against the protesters to try to take out key nodes. Sort of disruption, I guess you could say. And then the other side is, is repression, right? So you don't want people to organize in the first place. You don't want them to pursue political aims that are outside of your authoritarian aims. And so you mobilize information technology to just sort of outright repress them. And, and so we sort of grouped into those repression and disruption tools as the two categories we looked at. Yeah. And, and then there is this other category of great power competition or strategic competition. You know, a lot of these tools are being manifested in this, you know, in DC, we spend a lot of time and oxygen thinking about geostrategic competition. And, and these, these tools are definitely being deployed for that as well. There's no question that not only are these tools being turned on domestic populations, but, but they're being turned on international populations. I think we call it gray zone activity, statecraft that's uh, sort of above what, what's normal in, in diplomacy and even in espionage, but it's below the level of uh, outright warfare. Uh, and that can, that can be everything from election uh, misinformation, disinformation, to the solar winds hack that we've just seen in the United States, that the Russian government is likely behind, the, the sort of large-scale extraction of, of data and information that gives you geopolitical advantage. It's the 5G network fight in a sort of more open space of who controls the next set of standards or internet architecture that could enable surveillance down the road. It's the use of, of AI. It's, it's the use of all of these different things. It's also, we're, we're going to see it even more so, I would say this year in particular, on sort of data standards and data localization standards. The Chinese have this uh, draft law that's, that's percolating in their, in their own country that's meant to give the Chinese Communist Party much more power over the data produced by any company, foreign or domestic, that's operating inside of China. And that also sort of expands their control outside of the country as well. So again, expanding that view of data sovereignty of what you have control over. You know, we say data is the new oil. I mean, that's sort of the old (laughs) expression that was in vogue a few years ago. I don't know what's the new oil now. Oil certainly isn't the new oil, but I think it's kind of the new sovereignty and it's the new means of control, sort of expanding your territorial control over your own citizens and other people's citizens. 
Agreed. And I think that's all troubling in its in its own right. And then we get to this second bucket about geostrategic competition. And, you know, with the tools of great power competition, we're including the massive amounts of investments made into promotion of, you know, things like the digital Silk Road, where China is using its ambitious Belt and Road Initiative to have essentially Chinese-owned, quasi-owned, or full state-owned businesses build 5G networks. Sam, you mentioned 5G. I mean, it's, it's not just about the standards, which I agree is huge. It's about the pipes, you know, who, who controls that infrastructure and underwater cables, et cetera. And, and right now, it's the Chinese. And so I think they're gaining an advantage in, in that way. And so it's, it's a really important tool, this, this tool for engaging in geostrategic competition given that controlling that underlying digital infrastructure gives authoritarian-minded regimes near unlimited backdoor access, right? So if I'm installing something for you, I can, I can install these kind of overlays that, that offer my government or my security apparatus backdoor access to, to all of that data. Again, data may not be the new oil, whatever the new oil is, but but it's still incredibly powerful for control and commercialization. And quite frankly, as a feed into all the digital authoritarianism tools that we're talking about. So all these tools are being used to advance an authoritarian vision of the internet. I think that's that's what this comes down to is, you know, do we believe in, in a free and open internet or, or do we believe in this kind of fractured, easily controlled internet that, that effectively kills the most essential virtues uh, of what we consider to be modern economies and societies, which are that it's open, it's interoperable, it's reliable, and it's, it's secure. Uh, and I think right now we find ourselves in a moment in time where that openness, interoperability, reliability, and security is not a given. Yeah. And, you know, I, I should say this is a good point at which to acknowledge not only our colleagues, John Hillman and Jim Lewis, who have done a tremendous amount of work on, on this subject. But, you know, as we looked at digital authoritarianism, one of the things that we found was there is such an incredible quality of scholarship on the topic, on the various elements. But it's such a big issue that seldom do, do, do folks sort of pull together all the all the pieces and then say, how do we move the ball on this? And so I think that's one of the things that we found so striking is that there's a real appreciation and understanding of the challenge. Um, we know what's going on. We know what the bad guys are up to. We know what their plan is. We know where we're succeeding and where we're failing, but we haven't sort of pulled it together. And we'll, we'll get to our solutions, but I just wanted to say that. And then, of course, you know, the thing we wanted to avoid in this project was scoping too narrowly again. So we didn't want to scope too narrowly, but we have to admit that at the center of this challenge is China. China is the only country in the world with a technology base that can rival the United States and that really has an interest in replacing the United States as a, as a provider of these uh, goods and, and networks. And so China is at the center of, of what's going on here with sort of creating the potential of a parallel internet. And of course, this has been accelerated under the Trump administration, which has tried to make people choose sides with Clean Network Initiative and number of other pushes that they've made. I mean, it started with with a Clean Path and went from went from there. So, you know, we we are at this point where it is U.S. China competition playing out in in tech, but we don't want to lose sight of all of the other sort of dimensions of, of digital authoritarianism. 
you previewed a little bit for the listeners, but we don't just identify challenges and tools, but but we actually try to think about in our piece, what, what can we do about this? And Sam, last week, uh, Joe Biden took office as the 46th president of the United States. And in April of, of last year, he wrote in Foreign Affairs, it's, it's, I feel like, one of the most often quoted foreign affairs articles ever. You know, the Democracy Summit, for example, came out of this foreign affairs, and everybody keeps referring to it. But, but he did actually talk about some of these issues. And so I think it's worth just briefly going over what he said. And he said, when it comes to technologies of the future, the United States needs to do more to ensure that these technologies are used to promote greater democracy and shared prosperity not to curb freedom and opportunity at home and abroad. As new technologies reshape our economy and society, we must ensure that these engines of progress are bound by laws and ethics, as we have done at previous technological turning points in history, and avoid a race to the bottom where the rules of the digital age are written by China and Russia. It is time for the United States to lead in forging a technological future that enables democratic societies to thrive and prosperity to be shared broadly. Now, I, I'm not a very good actor, so that wasn't a very good portrayal of, of President Biden. But what do you think about when you hear that? I mean, that's I, I feel like it was really an eloquent encapsulation of some of what we're thinking about. But what are your thoughts on this? That's right. Nature abhors a, a vacuum and it doesn't exist for, for long. And so we put forth four sets of recommendations, which had, I think, a pretty broad support in previewing it with the experts and practitioners we, we shared this uh, paper with. Uh, and I will say that, that among them were not our funders. This doesn't reflect where the tech industry was. This, this reflects what sort of policy generalists who study the tech industry think and, and Republicans and Democrats alike who we shared this with. We tried to look at something that would be useful for members of Congress on both sides of the aisle maybe an increasingly difficult thing to do right now. But it's something that I think if, if it's pursued faithfully might might really be helpful for the incoming administration. So, you know, this is this is uh, offered up in, in good faith. And when we wrote the report, we wrote it for whoever was going to win the, the presidential election. Indeed. Here's Suzanne Spaulding on what the U.S. can do, especially on Capitol Hill. We are likely to have a, a Congress that is in a position to look back and uh, find ways to strengthen accountability and oversight mechanisms going forward. And I think that's an important role that Congress can play. I hope that Congress will rediscover its important role as a separate branch of government that is an integral part of its oversight, not just its legislative responsibility, but that its oversight is an essential part of sustaining public trust in government. When you characterize these these recommendations, how how would you how would you put them forward? You know, we we came up with I feel like four is the number de jour. We have four challenges, four tools, and and four recommendations. And uh, sometimes that the universe just aligns in that way. And not only do we think that all four of these at a bigger level in, in the in the policy brief, you can see a little bit more details. But we think that the four are important in their own right, but the sequencing of them is also important. And so the first one, actually, we had a little bit further down at first. And then as we started writing this more, we, we started realizing that first and foremost, we need to promote resilience to digital authoritarianism by strengthening democracy and human rights at home. 
And again, listeners, this was written well before January 6th, 2021. And I think that this thing that we wrote about needing to, to strengthen democracy and human rights at home is ever more critical. It's really hard to imagine any sort of successful strategic response to digital authoritarianism abroad if, if we in the United States fail to strengthen our own democracy at home. The U.S. will be really engaging in this, in this fight severely weakened by four years of internal attacks on democracy, which all led up to the violent insurrection and coup attempt uh, that we all watched in horror on, on January 6th. Democratic norms and, and human rights principles, which we have promoted globally for decades, quite successfully in some cases, are just as relevant and important back home. This idea that there is no, no truth, right, moving us to a post-truth world, the idea that the system is irrevocably broken, that is designed to rob us of the informed and engaged citizenry a democracy depends upon. We need to educate the public about our democratic institutions, what their role is, how individuals must hold them accountable. We need to empower individuals to be more effective agents of change, that democracy is worth fighting for and that it must be fought for because it is under attack. We have seen a period uh, over the past decade or so in which democratic norms and principles that were established in the pre-internet age and the pre-digital age uh, have been subverted quite systematically and strategically by authoritarians. Authoritarians in many ways have out-innovated the democracies. They have not out-innovated tech companies based in the democracies. They have out-innovated democratic societies and democratic governments in understanding that cyberspace, the digital space, is a central arena in the competition between a free and open world and one that looks more like the world envisioned, for instance, by the Chinese Communist Party. We cannot impose solutions uh, the way authoritarians can. So they can flip a switch and do total surveillance. Uh, we cannot flip a democratic switch and do full spectrum civic education, defeat disinformation, etc. Again, that was Suzanne Spaulding, followed by Daniel Twining. Uh, so our, our efforts to counter digital authoritarianism abroad can really only succeed when we lead by example. Which is why even before we invest in building resilience to offensive digital tools, which is, takes up a lot of oxygen in the U.S. government, and I think it's useful, we need to be able to, to have tactical responses. Political leaders need to work on strengthening trust. We need more trust in democratic domestic institutions. This means protecting our information systems, election institutions, justice systems, political transition processes, and other critical civic and, and public institutions. There's going to be a lot of oxygen around this in the, in the coming years. And I think one of the things that Sam and I wanted to do is we wanted to tie those efforts into this digital authoritarianism piece, because we can't be combating digital authoritarianism without actually having some of those really blocking and tackling nuts and bolts, civic and sort of grassroots level trust that, that we're so early lacking in this country. A second recommendation that we have is we need to, to protect and promote democratic and human rights principles in authoritarian-led states via free and secure communication over a free and secure internet. So we've talked about the fragmentation of the internet. We've talked about data localization and some of these efforts to re-envision what the internet looks like. We have to fight that. In recent years, China and Russia have really strived to, to create a bifurcated fragmented internet that, that allows for strong state control. Sam talked about this before. 
we can't let them succeed because if they do, it will end internet openness and the prospects of, of those relying on it for political and economic freedom. Let me just interject for a second there because I think an important sort of corollary to that is if, if states don't sort of regulate internet services, who should? And I think we're right in the middle of that debate right now in the United States. And we've even seen a split right off the bat between what Twitter decided to do in banning President Trump and a number of supporters online and what uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel weighed in with saying that she was worried about the precedent of basically what, what the state should be regulating being left to private industry. But that was in effect sort of a, a, a statement of a longstanding European versus U.S. view on the role of, of country governments in, in regulating affairs. And so I, I, think, I think we should say our report also says there is a need for regulation and self-regulation isn't working. And so on the one hand, you don't want state regulation that's so heavy handed that it turns into authoritarianism. And, and we've even identified, you know, a well-meaning sort of data localization requirement in one country when copied in another country that has a different political system and a different sort of judiciary system and rule of law, it comes out much different. So this is a state by state issue, but there probably is also just a need for much better shared principles internationally on this data standards, whether it's free flow with trust, sort of the, the Japanese proposal or things that have been working through the G20, G7 and, and, and elsewhere. So we, we definitely don't say that we shouldn't be regulating this because I think, again, January 6th, proof positive that the current U.S. approach didn't work. And so what comes next in the U.S. and, and globally is, is really, as you said, going to be at the center of, of a lot of discussions over the next few years here. Yeah. And just to put a finer point on leading up to January 6th, what was the U.S. approach? And it was essentially, other than rhetoric coming out of the former president's Twitter feed, and other somewhat toothless executive orders, there was not really a whole lot of concerted regulation. And so there was an attempt to do this self-regulation thing, whether that was a you know, deliberate attempt or just the way that the cookies crumbled. And I think what we saw was, as you said, Sam, it didn't work. And so I think President Biden needs to, to focus on a lot of these issues that we had talked about. And I think we did write this for whoever inhabited the White House on January 20th. It just so happened that it's going to be President Biden. And so we'll be talking about President Biden. And we think that he needs to, to direct his administration to ensure that, that cybersecurity efforts, which get a lot of attention, I think rightly so, they need to also not just be thinking about stopping the future cyber attacks, which is, again, really important, but they also need to incorporate democracy, human rights, and governance principles into their strategies. I think that that's something that's that's missing and could sort of counter the the unintended consequences that we're that we're seeing. So we think that unlike in recent past, you know, President Biden should resist the temptation to to erect expansive digital walls. So again, you know, Sam just talked about how one regulation in one country could have an unintended consequence in another. You know, banning individual platforms like Huawei, TikTok, WeChat. I won't weigh into the parlor debate. I don't know anything about parlor, but you know, banning individual platforms such as these, it's tempting. And I understand that temptation, but doing so could come with those negative repercussions that we're talking about. Instead of individual platform bans, 
National security concerns can be addressed by adopting and enforcing principles and norms, protecting the American people rather than singular bans on specific companies. We need a strategy. We need a government that's sort of aligned behind that strategy, and that's been missing. Actions that, that ban platforms outright can enable China and other advocates to justify a more fragmented and centrally con- controlled internet. Here's Danny Russell on that point. I think there's great urgency, but in crisis, the most important thing you can do is to s- take a step back, take a deep breath, and look at the big picture and not just plunge in. So I think that just as we need to recognize, or just as we need to, to say, take a strategic perspective in how we approach this problem set, we also need to recognize that uh, we're facing an integrated strategic threat in many ways. Picking up on something that Danny Russell said in our webinar too, we have a real challenge in the degree of animosity that agree that exists between tech companies and, and Washington policymakers. And the same is true between tech companies and, and their regulators world worldwide. Even in China in the state-led system, we, we see Jack Ma's empire collapsing because the Chinese government felt like he got too powerful with his payments uh, and online commerce uh, empires in particular. That's a key both strength and weakness in in the current U.S. play in this, in that there needs to be sort of an alignment of, of values and principles between the tech industry and Washington before we can go do this internationally. So our third recommendation for the new administration is to counter digital authoritarianism with defenses that are actually rooted in affirmative visions, norms, and, and principles. So not just rejectionism, but, but saying what we are for. So tactically, what it means is we need new investments in open, transparent, and easy to understand technology tools and ways of, of uh, putting norms and, and r- rules around those. We need enhanced regulatory models and stronger reporting requirements for foreign state-owned propaganda outlets operating in the United States. I mean, we've been on to RT for years and years and years, and yet they are ubiquitous in the United States. We've just had an exposure of how aligned they are with a number of far-right sites that are feeding traffic into them, so sort of putting hapless eyeballs toward them. We need to give our justice system the ability to impose penalties for civic interference through digital disinformation campaigns and propaganda and economic interference through espionage. You know, this is really complicated stuff for them to make stick at present. So we need to look at the at the legal basis on which we, we combat this. President Biden, I think, can also empower the Federal Trade Commission to censure or levy fines against social media companies that fail to disclose and address the promulgation of bots on their platforms. Uh, you know, we have the Bot Disclosure and Accountability Act. And we've just sort of seen a, a number of the social media companies clean house after January 6th. Lots of people complaining about losing followers. Many of those followers are not real people. They were bots, right? And people claiming jillions of, of followers when, the, when they don't have them, it affects perception, it affects standing. That's important. And then we need a resilient strategy for our response. You know, these are fast evolving tools and tactics. It's impossible to fully understand and anticipate where they're going. And so we need to innovate in our responses. Absolutely. Here's Danny Russell again. The United States allows the free market to take the lead in developing standards by and large. And it's not that the U.S. should replicate a Chinese approach, but we have to outsmart it and outcompete it. Our digital development and cybersecurity efforts have to meld with our democracy promotion efforts. So our capacity building efforts 
shouldn't target, you know, only the technologically savvy, but really the most common functions of our of our civic lives. You know, we're thinking too narrowly in how we're we're building resilience in other societies as well. And so, you know, uh, my my colleagues in the CSIS International Security Program have have argued specifically they've done a lot of work around what what we call gray zone competition and this is really where the united states and allies are getting our lunch eaten and where those who are looking at the future of conflict say that everyone else is going people still don't want to take the united states on in sort of symmetrical way and so they use this advantage of digital authoritarianism it's one of the most worrisome tools of competition and as we are seeing day to day in the united states it's eating away at our country at our national cohesion and our international competitiveness and so we have to sort of stay true to our principles. We have to make sure that we're, our commitment to human rights and democratic principles are, are special tools that we have, but we need to do things that, that enable those that take account of how much digital authoritarianism has eaten them away. Surveillance, uh, the ideas of, of how we build a affirmative vision in the developing world on all of these, these issues, and also, you know, making sure that, that we're showing up in all ways in, in terms of providing for economic growth, of allowing people to tap into the technology revolution, and that we're not just making it really easy for China to swoop in there with their authoritarian strings attached. I mean, look at the African Union headquarters where Huawei has provided all of the internet backbone, and we're getting more and more revelations of Huawei spying on Africa through all of this. And why is it? Because we didn't offer them that, and that we didn't provide an alternative, and we probably didn't do enough to share the intelligence that we had about what a risk that was. We also have lots of tools at our disposal, the global multilateral system, which we've neglected badly uh, under the Trump administration. There's a renewed commitment clearly under the Biden administration. And this is something we can, we can deploy with, with good effect. Totally agree. Danny said something similar back at our October event. The goal ought to be to find ways to bring China and other actors into an international system with certain standards and rules to create incentives, peer pressure, use leverage to get them to adhere to those standards. I admit, easier said than done. We need to find areas of overlap with our oldest and closest allies in Asia, Europe, and other like-minded countries, whether that's the G7, sort of this new D10, other multilateral forums. These are all platforms that are really available to us to, to arrive on sets of frameworks and, and shared views on how to promote democracy and human rights. Bingo. I think that's honestly one of the most important things that we can take away from this is that we, we can't do this alone. Our efforts to counter digital authoritarianism have to hinge on building a, a multilateral coalition. This is not just the multilateral system, which has its challenges but with, with friends and allies. Because I think together, if we have those unified, not, maybe not even unified, just kind of standard rhymes with one another principles, then we'll actually be able to, to provide that sort of alternative. And, and honestly, an outgrowth of that would be a competitive alternative to the African Union needing 5G. I mean, that... that these things are not just about sort of high-minded principles. These are also about creating economic opportunities for our companies and, and companies and, and private firms and allied and, and friendly countries. So again, we need to offer an alternative to the authoritarian model of digital development that the world currently has. And, and uh, you know, you can't blame 
countries, especially countries that don't have a viable alternative for entertaining more strings attached versions of digital development, which is why we have to offer an alternative to that. So uh, essentially, President Biden, we think, should use all available political capital to ensure that we continue to be active participants in all the relevant international bodies. So some of this stuff is super boring. It's really wonky. The International Telecommunications Union is probably something that very few people have ever heard about that is incredibly important in in setting the, the international standards. The World Trade Organization is one that people have heard about, but it tends to be a very narrow version of, of what the World Trade Organization can do. They, they can do a lot in this space, the World Internet Conference, and on and on and on. If we don't participate and, and lead these institutions, the Chinas and the Russias of the world and the Saudi Arabias and, and other sort of countries that are led by authoritarian-minded leaders, they're putting people forward. They have long-term strategic views. They understand the importance of these institutions. And we used to. We were there at the creation of a lot of these, and we need to get back to that. Sam, we've covered a lot of ground here. I think if folks need more information, uh, we'll have it in the show notes where they can find this policy brief. It's really been a pleasure to work with you on this. I, you know, You said before that there's a lot of understanding of what digital authoritarianism is and what the challenges are. And yet we started this whole exercise last year being like, well, but what are we doing about it? And how can we do better? And so we, we did our best, I think, in, in putting what an affirmative vision could look like. And we hope it's useful for the incoming Biden administration. We hope it's useful for friends and allies abroad and for the general public just hoping to understand a little bit more about this global phenomenon. So Sam, thanks again for all your partnership. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Earl. And I'll just say also, you know, if anybody's made it this far in the podcast, congratulations. But there's a great video that our friend and and colleague Paul Franz uh, put together that's on digital authoritarianism. And one of the points that it makes is that, in fact, authoritarianism is, is hardly new. But the ways in which it's been supercharged by digital tools are what is so important and different and makes the challenge so critical and immediate. And so, you know, I, I think that that video really puts into, into place that we're fighting something truly evil and pernicious. And because of our inaction, we are behind the curve. And so we, we've got to start putting into place some strategies to move out on this stuff quickly. And, and so hopefully that's the number one thing for the new administration is that you can't let sort of the, the perfect strategy be the enemy of just starting to tackle this bit by bit and, and lots, of, lots of tools and pathways to do that. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Building the Future. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 